On Better Health today, I have registered dietitian and nutritionist Lily Nichols with me, and she's super passionate about evidence-based prenatal nutrition for women, and she's written the best-selling books, Real Food for Pregnancy and Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. Welcome to the show, Lily. It's an honor to have you. Thanks for the invite. Alrighty, so I'm very excited about today because we're talking about Yes, prenatal nutrition. And I think this is a very important topic because a lot of women don't know what are the great foods to eat that will actually nourish myself and the baby. So we'll be diving into that. But what I like to do first off is dive into a little bit about you, Lily. So could you give us context on like where you grew up and where you live now and just a little background? Sure. I've lived all over the place. It's kind of hard to keep track of where I am. I grew up in Southern California, actually, and I moved across the country for college and moved back for to complete my dietetic internship and training. And I've just been moving around since. I got into this work in prenatal nutrition uh, really early on, pretty much right away after I became a dietitian and have worked in many different capacities from public policy level with the state of California's uh, diabetes and pregnancy program to clinical practice research, of course, now writing and then helping to train other healthcare professionals on this because there's definitely a, a need for it. Yeah. And uh, really, the focus of my work has been looking at our guidelines, the strength of the evidence that was used to set these guidelines, yeah. how they perform or not in clinical practice, and then looking at new research, where can we improve? Because ultimately, what I found in practice was that the guidelines really didn't work that well, particularly for gestational diabetes. That's what prompted me to write my first book, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. But you can look far beyond just the gestational diabetes guidelines. You can go nutrient by nutrient and find discrepancies in the data. And so I'm really an advocate for filling in that gap. Maybe I'm a little pessimistic after doing this work for so long, but I don't see the, I don't think it's a wise idea for us to wait around for our government nutrition policies to change. Certainly some of them have been updated, like the Czech Republic updated their gestational diabetes guidelines in 2016, following the information essentially from Real Food for Gestational Diabetes, and they've had a significant improvement in their maternal and fetal outcomes and in pregnancies affected by gestational diabetes, but they're a small country. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a lot fewer hands in the pot right. arguing for whatever guidelines are going to benefit their industry or whatnot. I'm really about getting the information out at a grassroots level, informing women and families themselves, as well as their healthcare providers. And sometimes we do see some small changes in smaller hospital systems, clinical practices, OBGYN and midwifery offices. And that that has an effect that trickles out. Totally, totally. And that's exactly why I love you, because when I read your book, it was so evidence-based and you were not afraid to share like what the actual truth is behind certain foods and how the regulations are totally not meeting the par and they're not meeting the mark. And you're willing to expose that in a way that is very valuable. And I think that more women need to know about it because it's so important. And we're told a lot of lies that just don't quite do the trick. And yeah. I just love that you're able to do that and you show it evidence-based wise. And it's not just like you're pulling it out from nowhere. So that's amazing. I would also love to know what was your childhood like in regards to health? And a lot of people don't come from a health background and um, they grow up 
eating the standard conventional foods. So I'd love to know, like, how did you grow up? Sure. Growing up in California, had kind of hippie parents. Oh, yeah. (laughs) They They were health conscious, not to a level of extreme obsession or anything, but at the same time, they were still impacted by the dietary guidelines. So mm. what I mean is we didn't have a whole lot of processed foods in the house. My mom was very careful about um, minimizing the amount of sugar that was in the house. So like I didn't grow up having soda in the house. I didn't grow up with sugary cereal in the house, that kind of thing. But we still had plenty of Halloween candy and whatever. Oh, yeah. But there was definitely a discussion around like how food makes you feel. So definitely grew up with kind of a mindful eating perspective and certainly more of an emphasis on unprocessed foods. However, I do feel that my parents were still impacted by the dietary guidelines because they believed that meat was something to minimize. Like we didn't have red meat in the house almost ever. It was chicken, occasionally fish, (laughs) (laughs) all the vegetarian options as well. We had a lot of vegetarians in the extended family. And while we never, she didn't take it to the level where she cut out butter, like we always had real butter and not margarine. Yeah. It was always like unprocessed as much as possible, but there still wasn't very much meat. So when I look back, I realize a lot of my experience in really the first two decades of my life, I frequently had low blood sugar just because I wasn't getting enough protein or probably not enough fat to keep me satiated. So it was kind of like, I just snacked a lot because Mm. I wasn't eating enough protein. (laughs) I'm hungry. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) At no fault. And there was no limitation on snacks or anything. But uh, I realized looking back, yeah, probably wasn't eating enough protein. And they've since kind of shifted the way they eat where they try to eat more meat and protein now too, but they had really bought the idea that red meat was bad for us. And that was definitely something that was limited in the house unnecessarily. Yeah. Um, Overall, it was pretty unprocessed food and there was definitely um, an acknowledgement of food affects how you feel. And there was always vegetables and brown rice and, and whatnot. So I certainly appreciate at least having grown up developing taste buds for normal, not ultra processed foods. We just didn't have as much of that as the typical American household. We certainly had some. (laughs) Thankfully, she also wasn't incredibly restrictive. Uh, Yeah. So we had, we had boxed mac and cheese occasionally and we eat out and have takeout, whatever. But if it came to, she's going to cook a meal, it's generally going to be from scratch and not from a box. That I certainly definitely appreciate. (laughs) Yeah. So interesting. So it seems like you guys definitely landed in the middle of at least like standard versus now where you are and it's so cool how now they're they've taken on to some of the things that you teach on and so when did that switch happen because the first two decades or so you said yeah we're on that that diet and when did the switch happen when did you start discovering like oh wow like things are really backwards and then you start diving into the actual evidence behind things what was the timeline there so high school i started getting very interested in nutrition, I had a short-term vegetarian phase, which left me feeling <laughs> really awful. But I actually uh, was an intern for a local nutritionist, and I was vegetarian at the time. She recommended the book Nourishing Traditions to me by Sally Fallon, Western Price Foundation yeah. sort of stuff. And that was the start of Ernie. seeing things from a different perspective. And oh, mm-hmm. so I should actually be, I could actually put like more butter on my sourdough yeah. and like <laughs> venturing into including red meat. But it still, 
and it's not like we never had red meat. We just didn't cook it at the house. You know what I mean? So we might go out to eat and have a burger at a restaurant or something. No big yeah. deal. But it was just something they didn't typically buy for the house. So that that sort of started the unlearning and relearning. Certainly, I started reading that type of information more on ancestral eating before I even went to college. So maybe it's a stretch to say the full two decades of my life, maybe the first <laughs> years. Yeah. But still, my diet was really very carb heavy, even though I was incorporating a little more animal protein, a little more animal fats. It was still very carb heavy. It was like, oh, Nourishing Traditions has a recipe for soaked steel cut oats that you soak overnight. And so it was like, yeah. I had like oatmeal for breakfast forever, which I write about all over my blog, my experience yeah. with oatmeal. <laughs> what a disaster it is for my blood sugar. But I was still <laughs> under, oh, I was still eating quite a few grains, quite quite a bit more carbohydrates yeah. than what I've now determined over the years is really <laughs> optimal for, for my diet. So it's, yeah. it things gradually shift like anything with health, you get to try different things out and see how it makes you feel. Like probably anybody who went into the field of nutrition, I've tried almost all of yeah. the iterations <laughs> of healthy eating and landed at this this sort of nutrient-dense ancestral angle for, gosh, since like my early 20s and I haven't looked back. Oh. I occasionally do, if I'm with a friend that's vegan, I'll occasionally have a couple right. days vegan and yeah wow makes me feel completely terrible and all <laughs> yeah i've had i agree or processed foods and i'm like oh this is why i don't yes <laughs> where i um, you know or have yeah. cereal or a pastry for breakfast and i'm reminded this is why i don't do this on a regular basis so <laughs> this is exactly it <laughs> yeah I uh, I did a 20-day challenge of eating vegan because I was like, okay, I want to see how I actually feel on this. And I felt horrible. I was so fatigued. I didn't have any energy. I was craving red meat. I was craving eggs. And I felt like my face looked just pale. And so then the moment I was done with the 20-day challenge because I was like, I wanted to see it through. I was like, okay, let's fry the eggs. Let's actually have some good yeah. food because, yeah, like you, I just felt horrible. Uh, yeah. yeah. All of our physiology is a little different too. So I think some people are more sensitive to that than others. I'm certainly I'm very prone to going hypoglycemic. And so yeah. if I if my diet becomes too carb heavy and not enough protein and fat, it's like I'm just on a blood sugar roller coaster mm -hmm. and I've worn a continuous glucose monitor several times so I can see it right. happening in real time. And it's right. It's arguably my body's doing its best as a pretty healthy response, brings those spikes yeah. down very quickly, definitely bottom out. I just <laughs> completely tank. Yeah. And uh, believe me, I've lived that roller coaster <laughs> life of highs and lows all day long yeah. and it, it doesn't feel good. <laughs> it's yeah. much nicer to be a little more even keeled and it trickles out to affecting really almost every aspect of really well-being. Yeah, 100% agree. So let's dive a little into the meat of everything, prenatal nutrition. To start us off, could you talk about the importance of nutrition during pregnancy and why it's so vital and why you wrote a book on it basically and just dive into the importance of it and then we'll continue from there. Sure. It's the What you eat arguably before, during, and as well as after pregnancy really affects your well-being, but also your baby's health and development as well. The environment that a baby grows in utero, the nutrients that are being 
sent across the placenta to the baby, the level of blood sugar in the maternal system, the level of toxins, all of this ultimately gets to the baby as well. Some people think of the placenta as being some sort of a buffer or a filter, to speak. And I, I guess in a very small way it is, but for the most part, like blood sugar levels that mom experiences are the same as the blood sugar levels that baby experiences. And this can impact their development, which affects them for the rest of their life. So we think of the traits that we got from our parents as being inherited. Certainly things like the color of our hair and eyes and whatnot. Yes, some of those set and we do inherit our genes. However, the expression of our genes, whether or not maybe there's a family risk factor for heart disease, but whether or not we are prone to heart disease can be influenced by whether that gene was turned on or off. It's called epigenetics. And that ultimately is impacted by all those factors I just went through, nutrient levels being a big one. So this was most clearly present with gestational diabetes, for example. So we know that babies born to mothers that had poorly controlled blood sugar during their pregnancy. So unmanaged gestational diabetes, they face anywhere from a six to 19 fold increased risk of obesity or type two diabetes by the time they're teenagers. Insane. And that, that right there is enough to be like, okay, I'm going to take this seriously. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And you can look at oftentimes there's in the way that the research is done, they're looking at markers of infant brain development or cognition, reaction time, those sorts of things. So we have data showing vitamin B12 levels, choline, which is a B vitamin-like compound, iron, iodine, folate. You can go on and on. These things can all impact babies' brain development. I'm about identifying like where are these levers that we can pull to, to optimize things for baby, but also maternal health as well, because many of these things also impact the risk of certain pregnancy complications. So could we do things to possibly reduce our risk of gestational diabetes or preeclampsia or just improve our overall enjoyment of the experience of being pregnant? Lessen the nausea, lessen the swelling, lessen the heartburn, lessen the constipation, lessen the aches and pains? Are there areas where we can improve it so we're not super miserable the whole nine months? And also improve it so that we recover better postpartum. And yes, there's actually quite a few things that we can do to improve our experience. Can be for selfish reasons. Totally. I love that. And it really makes you think, okay, I want to take this one time that I'm holding this particular baby seriously, because if I am not getting certain nutrients, that can have so many long-term effects for that child when they're 20 years old, 30 years old. Like It just affects you so much. But I also love in your book how you have this grace still because women sometimes experience the nausea and they don't want to eat like anything. And then you worry thinking, I'm not getting the nutrients I need. I know that I should be getting this and this, but I can't even keep it down. And so I love how, you know, you you put a very seriousness to what we intake for our food, but then you also have that grace as, yeah, and it's not easy sometimes. So just getting the little bits that you can is valuable during that time frame. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's in chapter seven, there's a whole section on nausea, yeah. nausea, vomiting, food aversions and cravings. I'm also a real human being. I have two (laughs) babies myself and I've been there firsthand. 
And I've also walked with hundreds and hundreds of women who've been there as well. And it's those stages can be really challenging. And oftentimes they they are just phases, but you do have to give yourself a lot of grace because ultimately pregnancy is an initiation into motherhood where you've got to surrender control. Not everything is in your control. It's very yep. preparation for birth <laughs> and uh, and managing children. Yeah. And so we can acknowledge where things are important, where they can make the biggest impact, but also understand that sometimes you simply can't eat in a way that's optimal <laughs> or totally, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's a little bit of both. And I think, I think that's important because I see a lot of strange content on the interwebs. Like some people would like to suggest that you can completely eliminate the nausea by eating certain things. And certainly there's things you can do to lessen it. And I go through all of that, but the concept that somehow like you should blame yourself for the nausea or I feel like what? <laughs> this stuff is usually coming from people who don't have never experienced yeah. <laughs> firsthand. You know what yeah. I mean? And that's an important, I think, distinction for people when you're looking at like where are you going to get your information when you're pregnant? Do try to get it from people who have been there. Yeah. But second of all, every pregnancy is different. I myself have only experienced two pregnancies. They're fairly <laughs> similar, but they have their differences. Yeah. And when you walk with hundreds and hundreds of women through your career, you can kind of acknowledge just the sort of normal variation woman to woman and give a little bit more reassurance, especially since I have so much experience with high risk pregnancies. Sometimes if we're like getting a little bit too crazy about nitpicking all the little things, I'm like, whoa, let's put it into <laughs> perspective compared to somebody yeah. that has like outrageously out of control blood sugar and right. super high doses of insulin and medication yeah. under control. And you're freaking out because you like can't eat enough food during the nausea phase. Like really, <laughs> truly. It's yeah. Okay. Let's get it's to the okay. foundational pieces first. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Super interesting. So I would love to know from your perspective, and I know you talk about this in the book, what are some of the most nutrient dense foods we can eat during pregnancy? Or you could also reverse it and refer it to what are some of the most vital nutrients that you should consume while you're pregnant. If either way works. I just would love to know how you would sum this up. Sure. I would go from, I like to do a food first perspective. So starting with eggs are a really fabulous source of nutrients. Throughout the book, I highlight a lot of these different foods and then the nutrients within them that are so vital. Because I find that if we just take a, a nutrient approach, people are more prone to look for supplements and other things. Mm-hmm. Whereas if we just call out the foods and the nutrients they have, it's a little easier about planning what to eat with with eggs, for example, they're a really rich source of choline, which, as I mentioned, is a B vitamin-like compound that plays a role in the health of the placenta, liver health, brain health, baby's brain and eye development. These are really vital things, and 90-plus percent of women are not getting enough choline. Eggs happen to be the number one dietary source, second only to liver, but we just don't consume enough liver to to yeah. meet our choline needs, whereas eggs provide upwards of about half of our choline intake in the diet. So definitely eggs with the yolks. They have the side benefit of being very rich in protein. So as far as like a breakfast option, they work really well for hitting your protein targets, which ultimately helps with your blood sugar for the whole day. Yeah. Uh, 
lots of the foods that I go through in the book are animal sourced foods. So my highlight liver and organ meats. I highlight meat on the bone and slow cooked meat and bone broth. I highlight fatty fish and seafood, full fat dairy products. All of these foods, if you're just looking at ranking foods by nutrient density, I can't say that I did it super systematically when I wrote the book. I was just looking backwards from, okay, what are the nutrients we need most of? What are the ones that most women are not consuming enough of? What are the rates of deficiency of these particular things? And let me go through it food by food and identify them. There was actually a study that came out, I believe in 2022, that ranked, they looked at what are the most nutrient-dense foods on the planet ranked by their levels of six different nutrients of concern. And they essentially came up with the same list that I did. So I could say wow. it's a little, feel a little You're like, yes, my evidence is good. <laughs> yeah. It's like essentially almost everything was animal foods with the exception of leafy green vegetables, which also is on my list as well. Yeah. Our animal foods are providing us, of course, with protein, but specifically high quality protein. So a really good balance of amino acids in there, which you you need a whole array of amino acids for proper development of the baby and to support your body as it grows and expands to accommodate all of these changes. They tend to provide a lot of iron and zinc, vitamin B6, vitamin B12, selenium, other micronutrients that are really important with your seafood. That's your major source of DHA, which is an omega-3 fat for baby's brain and vision development. So those are the ones that I really tend to have most. That doesn't mean that your diet should not or cannot contain other foods. Yeah. I simply like to highlight, hey, these things are the most nutrient dense. Make sure you find room for them in your diet. But of course, I'm going to assume you're eating other things. You're eating vegetables in addition to the non-starchy vegetables. You're eating fruit, you're eating nuts, seeds, legumes, probably grains as well, though you don't have to. So you can fill in the gaps with other foods, but you just don't want to fall short on these ones in particular. So you're hitting all of your micronutrient and protein targets. Totally. And so if we think about choline, how much choline on average should a woman who's pregnant consume? And how much is a serving of eggs? Like how many eggs is equivalent to that and liver and then compared to other foods that have a little bit but are not nearly as nutrient dense of choline like eggs and liver? Sure. I can by the way, refer people to an article on my website on choline where I go through a little bit of this. So excuse me if my numbers are not perfect off the top of my head, but yeah. roughly speaking, if you're going by the government guidelines, they suggest 450 milligrams of choline per day during pregnancy. That goes up to 550 milligrams during breastfeeding, by the way. But there is data now suggesting that we should actually consume more than double that amount because we have really well-designed studies where they've given women actually slightly more than the 450 mark. Yeah. And then another set of women, 930 milligrams. And then they look at um, brain development outcomes in the children. They've now followed these children up to age seven years old. And at all time points, they taste test better on cognition, reaction time, problem solving skills, working memory. So I would argue to aim a little bit higher on choline. Like I said, already 90 plus percent of women are not even hitting that 450 milligram target. As for food sources, so eggs, it, 
depends on the size of the egg, right. specifically the size of the yolk. So you could have as little as like about 120 milligrams of choline per egg or upwards of maybe 150 milligrams. You're doing like bigger eggs, like duck eggs, for example. Oh, yeah. They're even more. I think they're like 180 milligrams or something per egg. But ducks, oh. duck eggs are bigger and they have a bigger yolk. So yeah. it's all about the, the yolk. yolk. <laughs> liver, it ends up being around 120 or so milligrams of choline per ounce of okay. liver. These are by far the richest sources for sure. Second to that, you have your other animal sourced foods. So all of your meat, including bacon, bacon is actually a decent source. Oh. Salmon and other seafood, shrimp, those are all pretty decent sources of choline. I can't recall the exact concentration off the top of my head, but I think it's something like in the 60 to 100 milligrams or so per ounce, depending on the particular animal food you're looking. As you get into some of the lesser sources of choline, they're primarily plant source foods. Mm -hmm. So you're looking at for about a half cup of cooked beans or half cup of broccoli, yeah. like about 30 milligrams of choline. Nuts and seeds will have some too. So I think about an ounce of nuts is maybe about 30 or so milligrams of choline. So you do get... get yeah. So it's just yeah. more diluted. It's not as concentrated in those foods. Shiitake mushrooms are a surprisingly rich source of choline, but again, the, the concentration is yeah. quite low. Shiitake mushrooms, like about as much as air. So, right. Then you start looking at the volume of that 100 milligram or 100 gram by weight serving of food, it's like a lot of mushrooms. Right. If I can pull it up, or maybe you can put it in the show notes, you could link yeah, it if I have a choline comparison of eggs versus plant sources of choline and the, the serving size is just crazy. Wow. It's going to take yeah. two cups of cooked beans to equal the amount of choline in a single egg yolk. Right. Well, <laughs> you know, you probably don't have room in your stomach for yeah. two cups of cooked beans, certainly not at a meal, but even for a whole day, totally. that would be kind of hard to get in and your digestive system it might revolt be like what are you doing so, to me <laughs> yeah so this is why on average vegetarians have pretty low uh choline intake like less than 200 milligrams per day compared to omnivores unless they're eating a lot of they can make it up that way yeah wow super crazy and those are the things that you really don't realize if you don't do the studying when you're pregnant or going to be pregnant if you don't do that you don't really know and you're like i'll take a multivitamin and that should cover things but even then probably not meeting the mark and it's not as wholesome as the foods could be. What yeah. would you discussion base like do you preference then the more whole foods for that supplementation or what's the conversation there versus supplementing with actual supplements? How would yeah. you talk about that? I prefer prioritizing food first always and then using supplementation as a gap filler and depending on like the amount of dietary restrictions a person has, you may have more or less supplementation needs or their incoming status coming into pregnancy. Were they already deficient beforehand? They might simply need supplementation. Are whole food ways to, to supplement, so to speak? So there's desiccated liver and desiccated oyster supplements and greens, powders, and nutritional yeast and stuff like that. But you still often find that there are nutrient gaps, simply from the concentration of nutrients often in these options. And so I do, if I am going to supplement, no no harm against adding in food-based like concentrates and such. 
but I do typically recommend a prenatal vitamin, again, as an insurance policy and gap filler, and go with a brand that actually prioritizes using the active forms of the vitamins. So there, there are, not for all nutrients, but some, there's differences in the types that are typically included in supplements versus the form that they're found in foods. So like methylfolate, for example, 95 plus percent of the folate in our food is in the form of methylfolate and supplement manufacturers can use isolated methylfolate in their supplements and it's metabolized exactly the same as what you get in foods. However, most companies just opt for cheap folic acid because it's several thousand fold less expensive and it's just more readily available and and sometimes there's not consumer demand, right? I think it's also important for people to recognize that like simply by the amount of volume that it takes to fit in a clinically relevant dose of most nutrients, a one a day typically doesn't cut it. (laughs) Okay. So any type of one a day vitamin, they're going to be putting in pretty much pixie dust amounts of many of the nutrients or leaving them out entirely. So we talked a lot about choline. Choline is a perfect example. It is expensive and it is bulky. It takes up a lot of capsule space. Mm -hmm. So most companies just don't put it in. Same thing for minerals. Minerals are bulky. They take up a lot of space. If you look at like your a magnesium supplement, you might have 100 milligrams of magnesium in a capsule. If you need 300 plus milligrams per day, your prenatal, if it's going to include 300 milligrams, like it might have to devote three capsules worth of your daily dose just to magnesium, right? And people don't think about this and then they get annoyed when their one a day doesn't cut it. And it's like you can't like compare it together volume of something you know what i mean yeah, so definitely um yeah you're probably looking at full capsules per day just to hit the marks for all of those uh, that makes a lot of sense and it's yeah. like you said it can be an insurance policy to fill in some of the gaps but if you want to meet the mark you're going to have to take a lot of the supplements or you can just supplement with the foods instead and then also have a supplement on the side or something it's yeah, it's good to know because yeah. most people think uh, if I take the supplement, I'm I should be good to go. And like you said, choline takes a lot, and it does not have near as much choline, if any. And as we know, choline is very important. Very fascinating. How much should an expecting mother or yeah, someone who's expecting increase their caloric intake? Because I know that a lot of times people will say, well, I'm eating for two now, so I can eat double the portion. How would you guide someone along the lines of calories? So the eating for two concept, I think, is intentioned but misunderstood. Yes, you are eating to fuel two bodies now. However, that one body is very small and you don't actually need double the amount of calories or double the amount of food. You do need higher nutrient density because you need higher amounts of many vitamins and minerals. So I would focus more on improving the quality of the diet, displacing processed things with unprocessed items, which naturally increases the nutrient density that you're consuming per calorie. As for calories, it's debatable how many extra calories you need. As dietitians, we have all sorts of different fancy calculations that you can use to calculate the amount of calories either by trimester or even some formulas calculate by week. Mm. And ultimately, 
it's going to depend on the person. Right. Since a lot of women increase their level of full activity during pregnancy, naturally that kind of offsets. You're not burning, like you're burning more metabolically growing a baby, of course, but if you're not also burning as much with your exercise and movement, then sometimes that offsets the increase. To go by the conventional recommendations, it's typically about three to 500 calories per day, depending on where you are in pregnancy. And then ultimately, like how much food is that actually? You're probably looking at about a snack or two or a slightly larger portion at some of your meals. But I don't really, I don't really love the calories, calories out model because it doesn't account for about a million factors but like your metabolic health is yeah is a major one and even like your macronutrient intake can affect how many calories your body burns so people who eat a more carb heavy diet don't burn as many calories as people who eat fewer carbohydrates but more protein and fat your body is a little bit less metabolically efficient the more carbohydrates you eat so you may have more or less wiggle room even depending on what you eat Uh, So I'm a big fan of just opting for mindful eating. We talk about balancing out your intake at meals so you're getting a good balance of macronutrients, but also following your hunger and fullness cues to determine how much food you might need. I think anybody who's been pregnant before can identify there can be certain times, days, weeks (laughs) where you don't have much appetite and then there are weeks where your appetite is like (laughs) off the hook and you just want to eat everything. Yeah. Um, and I, I think we should lean into that because we really mm-hmm. don't have a perfect calculation that's going to work for every single person every single day. Our metabolic needs shift day to day, as do our nutrient needs. Just go with flow and don't overthink the calorie part too much. Certainly, you don't need double. Yeah, definitely. So <laughs> definitely seems, double. it seems like be very nutrient dense with what you eat. It's more about what you eat versus how much you eat. And then go with your instinct too. If you are a little hungrier, having a little more food. Of course, not doubling it like one might think and think, oh, I'll have two bowls of ice cream instead of this one. It right. comes down to the quality versus quantity and being really intuitive with your body as well. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So as we start to wrap things up, are there any key takeaways that you'd like to summarize for listeners before we head into the rapid fire? To, I think just to level set and give you something to focus on. Didn't talk enough about protein. So if you need one area to focus on, if our conversation has been a little bit uh, overwhelming, (laughs) focus on your protein. When I'm speaking to the nutrient density conversation, the making every bite count, as you've said, our protein-rich foods tend to be our nutrient-dense by default. And that's an area where most women are falling short. There was an analysis that looked at U.S. protein intake among pregnant women and how does it compare to current guidelines and then some of the newer research that has suggested that protein needs are actually a lot higher than the old guidelines. And 67% of third trimester mothers were not hitting that optimal intake level. So this whole concept that Americans are overeating protein isn't really true when you look at how much protein we actually need because our guidelines are set really arbitrarily quite low. So focus on protein get enough protein, focus on protein at breakfast, see how you feel, see how your cravings feel, how your digestion feels. A lot of times people just feel so much better when they get enough protein. And then by default, you're also likely going to be increasing 
your vitamin and mineral intake as a result as well. So that's definitely a good area to put your focus if any of this has been overwhelming. (laughs) Totally. I just highly recommend if people are listening and you're like, whoa, this is a lot of content. Read, Read the book. Particularly, I read Real Food for Pregnancy. And of course, if diabetes is of more concern, go for that one. But I think that you do a really good job summarizing like the factors that you know, really matter, the food sources, the evidence behind it. I'll link the book to Amazon in the show notes. So if anyone is interested, um, but with that said, let's move into the hard questions of the whole entire interview and the rapid fires. So the first one I have for you is what books are you reading right now? I'm not reading any books right now. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> People are really surprised that I'm not much of a book reader. Yeah. I read a lot of research articles. I would um, say that qualifies then. So I'm just I'm constantly reading research articles, but I'm not I'm not reading anything for fun. I'm not a fiction reader, never yeah. have been. I've read a handful of them in my life and I'm just it's not for me. But I love reading data. <laughs> so I read a lot I of need those people. <laughs> I like to go with what's current, what's just come out. And yeah. yeah. That's awesome. That's so funny. But hey, we I think it's great that you're reading actual data and stuff considering your position and what you do. The next question I have is, what's your favorite food? That's tricky. You always post really amazing pictures. So I could see why I mean, it might be hard. Right now, I just, I'm recipe testing a chocolate pot de creme recipe. Oh, I saw that. Lots of yeah. cream. So currently, that's my favorite thing <laughs> that's in the refrigerator, but... Yeah, I eat almost everything. Yeah, really, truly, I eat almost everything, and I get tired of foods pretty quickly. I can't, I can't be one of those people where it's like every Monday is meatloaf night yeah. and every Tuesday is pasta night. I just like I get bored. Yeah, I'm always cooking something different. But yeah, Sorry. if I had to choose right now, definitely the chocolate photograph. <laughs> I'm with you. We can relate a lot now. What is your definition of intentional living? I would say choosing to spend your time in a way that. It's in alignment with your values and keeps your body feeling good. Definitely. Super wise right there. And then what's your favorite travel destination or a dream destination that you have? I'll have to admit I'm not a big travel fan. That's not my favorite thing to do. But I would love to go to Europe someday. I've not traveled there yet. Yeah. And I don't even know where. I'm attracted (laughs) to going to somewhere in Scandinavia. Oh my gosh, me too. I don't know, Finland or Norway, Norway or up there. I love that. (laughs) And then we can have pots de creme over there. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And they're different fishes and such. (laughs) Love it. Awesome. This has been amazing, Lily. I appreciate you coming on. What is the best way for listeners to connect with you or get to know a little bit more about what you do? Yeah. So you can find my work on my website first and foremost. So that's lilynicholsrdn.com. That has 250 plus blog articles. I should probably take count because I've been saying that number for a while and I know it's more than 250, but (laughs) there's an article on like protein and pregnancy up there, eggs, choline, liver and organ meats, shellfish, weight gain in pregnancy. I mean, first trimester tips for getting through the nausea phase. There's a lot of information up on the site. I tend to write content in response to what are the questions that people are asking me a lot about. Yeah. And are there any topics that maybe I didn't go into as much detail in the book? At a certain point, you have to just pull back a little. Otherwise, you write, right. people already think of it like a textbook, but otherwise you're writing like a 
500 page thousand supposed to be a blog post <laughs> yeah so i like i i hold back sometimes in the book so that i can address things oh, okay yeah but i the book has plenty detailed but you want to know about folate versus folic acid there's a whole like yeah. seven thousand <laughs> plus word article on it on my website so definitely check out my website for that website links out to the books i do have a link to give away the first chapter for free so if you want to oh, know more about what is real food, how does it compare to a conventional prenatal nutrition meal plan. Sometimes people outside of the like dietetics field don't know just how risky maybe yeah, yeah. <laughs> controversial my content is until they totally. see the sample meal plan and they're like, oh my God, I'd like, be starving on that. I'm like, I know <laughs> that is what you're going to be told. Yeah. A doctor. Wow. Definitely there's a comparison sample meal plan there with the nutrient levels between the two just to illustrate why this stuff is so important. When I'm talking about nutrient dense, it's right there in black and white. As for social media wise, I'm on Instagram. My name's the same as the website. So Lily Nichols RDN, as you mentioned, that's where I post a lot of food pictures, random little research brief snippets, studies that I'm reading. And yeah, just anything that I feel like is interesting or beneficial to my audience, which is mostly women who are preconception or postpartum. Awesome. Yeah. All that will be linked in the show notes for you to reference. Super awesome. A lot of value there. And this whole interview, super valuable. So thank you for coming on, Lily. It's been an absolute honor. Thank you. 